and welcome to the Review Squared on Blaze Radio and blazeradioonline.com. Oh my goodness, I think we're coming up to the end here. So, wow, can't believe it. April's almost over, getting closer to. And yes, grateful to have you all, as always. Anyhow, I'm Gideon Kariuki. I'm Ethan Pellin. I'm Kirsten Dorman. I'm Alejandro Glassadra. And have we got a show for you this week? Of course, we are missing both Haley and John this week. Anyhow, as usual, I, I'm, I'm starting the show. And this week, let's talk briefly about capital punishment, the death penalty. This punishment for crimes, which is enacted at least in the US in 27 states and at the federal level, is one of the most controversial uses of state power and is once again being discussed for use in Arizona for the first time since a botched execution in 2014, according to the Associated Press. The Arizona Department of Corrections, Rehabilitation and Reentry obtained the lethal injection drug pentobarbital at, back at the start of March. It is not known exactly where it is from. This was followed by Attorney General Mark Brnovich informing the Arizona Supreme Court toward the start of April that his office will be seeking the execution warrants for two death row prisoners. Let me quote Brnovich from a statement he issued when he did this. Quote, capital punishment is the law in Arizona and the appropriate response to those who commit the most shocking and vile murders. This is about the administration of justice and ensuring the last word still belongs to the innocent victims who can no longer speak for themselves. Nothing happens in a vacuum, and this push comes right off of the heels of the resumption of using the federal death penalty at the end of the Trump administration last year, which prior to that had not been used at all since 2003. In that particular push done by then President Trump, 13 convicted death row inmates were executed. How, as back to the Arizona situation though, this renewed push here in Arizona for using the death penalty has already gotten national attention with an editorial in the LA Times condemning it. And also a opinion piece in the New York Times also condemning it. With that, I asked the panel what they think about this particular situation in Arizona and the death penalty more broadly. Um, I feel like a couple, hopefully I don't get flamed for this, anybody who's listening, but I feel like a couple years ago when I was not really like super educated or heard like stories about the death penalty, I was just like, oh, like, you know, I guess that's what happens if you do something really bad. But obviously like a couple years later and I like a little more educated and like heard from advocates and people who are trying to abolish it and stop it. Um, like there's already so much state sanctioned death all the time. Like why do we need the death penalty to add to it? Um, at the end of the day, like the, I mean, I can't speak from a family perspective, but like killing someone doesn't bring any, killing someone for doing something really bad at the end of the day doesn't change anybody's like material standing or like 
really change their life in any significant way other than knowing that that person is dead. Um, so really we're just killing people just to kill people at this point. Um, because that's like at the end of like, at the end of the process of someone is dead and really nothing has changed in the grand scheme of things. Um, so yeah, we, it's, it's bad. It's unfortunate that, you know, with our state legislature and the way our government is set up right now, there's like overwhelming support. Um, but hopefully we can inch closer to a world where state change and death is not an everyday occurrence. Yeah, it's, um, it's a, well, they don't know where. They, they haven't revealed who they're um, soliciting or, or purchasing the agent. Because I know that there's very, well, there's very few um, places where the U.S. government is, where, where governments are legally allowed to purchase um, the agents used in the executions. Um, and they're extraordinarily expensive because there's so few um, companies willing to produce them. So, but they still haven't revealed where, where they're from. Well, I guess, I guess maybe the company doesn't want, possibly the company doesn't want that to be revealed. Um, it's again, I, I, I've always um, held a very strong personal um, opposition to the death penalty. Um, just simply as both a personal stance and because I don't think that really the state should have that power in with its own citizens. The, oh, also, by the way, Alejandro, you don't need to like apologize for um, having, like when you were younger, having held maybe like a, what you think is a um, not acceptable opinion. Um, as you said, you've, you've learned over time and you've reflected on it. So there's really no, I don't, I don't personally think there's any um, need for you to apologize, especially since you, you acknowledged um, changing your views over time. It's just, it's, a, it's gonna take an extraordinary application of the state's resources. Um, so Brnovich, if he's still attorney general, when this comes up, he's, gonna, he's very likely gonna have to defend it in court. He's gonna have to marshal his resources in order to defend it and, and then pay an extraordinary sum of money um, in order to, to do so. And, and just simply put, I don't, there's really, most of the evidence points to that the death penalty doesn't um, provide any more disincentive to commit horrific crimes um, than other punishments. So it's not effective, it's extraordinarily expensive and it's immoral. And there's, there's not many um, pros, <laughs> not, at least in my view, many pros to it. And also this is this, this whole thing that Brnovich um, has been sort of like putting out of, of this image that he's trying or take that he's trying to make stand, I'll say, on the death penalty is in a sense he's saying that the only people who are opposed to this, you know, are outside groups, you know, the liberal media is covering this, you know, they don't understand that we, um, we Arizonans, um, you know, think that the death penalty is fine, that then we should, we should pursue it. When he's only speaking, he's not even speaking for a majority of the state. He's speaking for himself and uh, a collection of some of the, some of the Republican party.
Yeah. Um, oh, by the way, I just want to say, sorry. No, you're good. Um, so anyways, now I, 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 that statement of Brnovich's, which he kind of, that I said on the air, he kind of said a similar thing on Twitter the other day. And, you know, um, in response to the New York Times op-ed that got written uh, criticizing his plan to enact executions again. And so the person who wrote that, I, I, I should give, probably give a little more background on the New York Times op-ed piece. The person who wrote that is a journalist at the, an opinion journalist over at the New York Times, uh, Elizabeth Brunig. And Brunig had this to say, because uh, he essentially linked to her piece and then said a similar thing to that statement I previously read. Funny enough, almost exactly the same wording about justice for the victim's families. And Brunig had this to say in response, and I think it's interesting. I am the family member of a murder victim, Attorney General Mark Brnovich. My sister-in-law, Heather, was murdered in our hometown in Texas in 2016. Capital punishment wastes millions on doing the worst thing we can to perpetrators rather than the best thing we can for victims. So I find the kind of use of, while well, it's about the victims, to kind of be rather cynical because all, you know, there is no one size fit all. There are some who are the, you know, who are left behind who want the death penalty enacted, and there's others who are like, absolutely not. Actually, a famous case of them not wanting it was, I'm not sure if y'all remember this, but a couple of years ago, the Charleston church shooter, who's, I'm not, once again, I have an anti, I'm not naming mass shooters on air, no notoriety, but so but in that particular, his case, when it went to the courts, a lot of the congregation was like, no, don't execute him. Testified in court, like, no, 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 that is not what we want. And is it, would it be justice to execute someone? I mean, I mean, a bigger, broader question is, is it even justice to execute someone? My personal opinion is absolutely not. That it is absolutely not justice. Um, I think Ethan explained most of my arguments against it. And I mean, as somebody who does study law and policy, like, the consensus is basically the death penalty at best, at absolute best, does nothing. And at absolute worst could even actually induce crime yeah, we're, the jury's still out. There's no exact consensus, but the consensus is leaning. It does nothing to, it, it, it's actually much worse than you think it is. And I'm going to actually read uh, really quickly uh, from the uh, LA Times op-ed, because I think it really gets to, this is, of course, the LA Times saying this, and you can agree with it or don't. Um, so it's kind of talking about briefly, like kind of the push from both um, Bill Barr, the former attorney general um, under Trump and Brnovich here at the same time. And I'm going to read from it real quick. Quote, in both cases, the attorneys general provide 
yet more exhibits in a law library already full with them that capital punishment, as applied, is rarely about justice. Often arbitrary and capricious, it is also political and often pursued to display a politician's quote-unquote tough and crime credentials, or in Bernovich's admission, an apparent desire to send himself off on what he sees as a high note. So he said, and the context behind that is Bernovich in his statement said that the states, uh, that he said that they're going to execute, uh, that they're going to receive the death penalty before he leaves office. And they note that Bernovich has widely been rumored to be a contender for the um, 2022 race for governor in Arizona, which is in fact open because Ducey's term limited. And I'm not saying I particularly agree with that, but I do think it is a serious argument to be made that this, that whatever Bernovich is doing here, it's not about, it does not look like it's about justice. And it it's retributive in the dirtiest way possible. And I guess if you want to have a much deeper dive into the death penalty than what this show can provide you with the limited time we have on air, I highly recommend reading the book Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson. That, yeah, that will show you what the death penalty system in this country is like. If you can read that and defend the death penalty, um, in my view, my personal opinion, once again, then uh, good for you, I guess. Uh, but yeah, no, it's... It's really arbitrary. It's at political whim. It doesn't achieve what it sets out to do, on, at least in the rhetoric used by its uh, proponents. So then the question is, is what is it doing? And I guess I'll leave that to you, the listener. Okay, I guess with that, uh, no one's, everyone seems uh, talked all out on this one. I'll hand it off to Ethan for more. All right. Uh, thank you, Gideon, um, for, for your story. Um, I am uh, talking tonight again about Afghanistan, uh, but this time with uh, different news. Um, so yesterday, uh, the Biden administration made an official, um, official announcement um, of a dedicated withdrawal deadline by uh, September 11th, so on the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. Um, it means a complete, besides um, a small amount of troops to protect um, U.S. government facilities and the embassy, um, a complete withdrawal of all U.S. troops from Afghanistan. Um, this comes, um, this does mean that they do actually have um, an extended amount of time over what was the previous agreement between the U.S. government and the Taliban, which was that the U.S. would fully withdraw all of its troops by May 1st. That is certainly not happening, um, as that is two weeks from now, and the U.S. has really not been drawing down as of yet. Um, the, however, this withdrawal deadline um, is different from other ones in the past in that there are not, it's not conditions-based. Um, in a sense, Biden and the Defense Secretary have made um, a full commitment um, and have required the US, U.S. military to make a full commitment to withdrawing. So it's unlike the previous withdrawals, um, they have not, this one is not conditions-based. So in the past, in a sense, um, conditions-based withdrawals have meant the U.S. has been able to fluctuate troops 
um, in response to what it deems to be, say, a growing security threat. So when ISIS um, cropped up in Afghanistan, we were able to um, do a small surge back up of troops. In this case, it's complete. Um, however, it doesn't mean that, so the US is still going to maintain its um, current commitments of foreign aid. And in fact, um, some in Biden's administration are pushing to increase the amount of aid that we give um, to the Afghan government and organizations um, due to our troops no longer being there. And as well, the US is also negotiating agreements um, to expand our military um, operations and bases around Afghanistan. Um, so in uh, different Central Asian countries, such as Uzbekistan and Turkmenistan, um, the US already has military bases and is negotiating um, terms to expand our operations there. In a sense, the, this is how the Biden administration is attempting to approach the situation is by saying we no longer have a full troop commitment. We don't have boots on the ground in Afghanistan, except to protect our embassy, but we still have the capabilities to monitor and to attack um, Al-Qaeda and ISIS when uh, we deem it to be a threat. So the reaction has been mixed so far. Um, most of the Democrat, Democrats' um, responses has been rather positive. There are a few more, um, a few Democrats who are a bit more on the hawkish side who have uh, made not, not direct criticisms, not as strong as they did when Trump announced the withdrawal, but more so in a sense of um, saying, expressing concern that it's too too soon or too quick, but that it almost almost always typically been the response um, from the from the from the side in Washington that favors continued presence is always saying that it's um, too quick and too soon to withdraw. Um, the and this comes really honestly at 20, 20 years of a U.S. military presence, and both the Biden the Biden himself um, has most of the most of what has been reported is that he has expressed to the military that he wants to protect um, the Afghan democracy and he wants to protect the gains that he believes the US has made but we've already had our troops there for 20 years and they haven't made many improvements and so really how much longer do we expect because we can't we he doesn't feel that we should just have a endless commitment to maintaining a troop presence. And that's really not, um, and anyways, that's not acceptable under national law anyways, um, to just maintain a permanent, that as long as that in his eyes. And so I know in the past, this has almost always come up. So there's been some, some sort of syndicalism that's spread is, are, is the US really going to withdraw? And in this case, I do, I do think that this September 11th withdrawal is actually true this time, um, especially since there's really not many outs for the US in this case. And it's unfortunate um, because the Taliban is certainly going to, certainly going to gain from the situation. The Afghan government um, is very unstable, uh, it's corrupt, and their armed forces are very dependent on US military backing. But again, um, the, the thought has always been how much longer and how much longer and how much more money and how much more suffering is going to be inflicted on the Afghan population in order to preserve its current government. And so that's sort of the best rundown I can give of the present situation. So we're not completely just abandoning the entire situation, 
as I said, we're still going to be maintaining um, our bases around around the country, and um, the U.S. is still going to be running, you know, intel operations and and running um, maybe less. Um, it's just no more boots in a sense, in a sense, direct U.S. military presence. It will be over by September 11th. It is, I don't even know what to say in full on this, because it's like, for as long as I can remember, I guess like someone around our age, for as long as any of us can remember, our country's kind of been at war in Afghanistan. And like, I guess if you wanted, I guess the one pers- more cynical view is like, well, we still have, you know, our operations there. Like there's still going to be, things there, even if there's going to be a very minimal present, like no, you know, new troops or anything. And these are just mostly special units and whatnot. And, and that are mostly there as a support for the Afghan government. But it's, I guess to say that this, this seems very, very odd to me, because it's like, yeah, as long as I can remember, we've, We've been at war with Afghanistan. Uh, the war started when we were too young to remember it for all of us on the panel. And yeah, I, and what, what to, is next for Afghanistan is, oh, sorry. Not to inject too much of my own opinion into this, but really my analysis and my take on this is that this is a very symbolic gesture, which actually won't significantly change the situation on the ground is because the number of U.S. troops that have been killed in Afghanistan in the last two years is three. And we don't do the fighting anymore. It's it's mostly U.S. air power supporting Afghan Afghan on the ground forces. The U.S. military presence is purely, in a sense, to have a handle on the situation. But our exiting really doesn't change the combat situation on the ground. Is because again, as I say it's mostly U.S. bombing and U.S. reconnaissance in support of Afghan international security forces. We really actually have our troops, our boots on the ground actually have very little um, participation in the conflict. The, the, and the drawback of, of a withdrawal, partial drawback of a withdrawal or a benefit, it's, it's sort of a, it's a mix, is that our continued presence has sort of kept the Afghan war in a very steady state of, um, of stalemate is because the Taliban can't just outright and still can't just outright overthrow the Afghan government, especially with U.S. troops on the ground. And our, but our troops at the same time really aren't doing anything. It's just the pure presence of them has kept us in this present state. So removing them, I do think, still changes that side of things. But in terms of the actual war, I don't see a significant change with US troops leaving or staying. It, I still think that it's gonna be in this, in this steady state of um, stalemate. For as long as like we've been in Afghanistan, I've never, I've never really understood like why we've truly been there for like so, so, so long. Like, I feel like I can never read anything or no one could ever really tell me like why we were there for so long and why we um, heavily invested in so many resources. So 
I'm glad that we're leaving. I'm just, um, yeah, I just think overall, like the U.S. has entrenches themselves in way too many places that we don't really need to be. But yeah, Rose, right in the middle of what you're saying, Gideon. So we'll let you finish your point. Yes. Hello. Uh, I just wanted to say, like, yeah, Alejandro, I agree. I personally. Personally, part of me is like relieved. Like, yes, it's ending. But like Ethan said, like, is this really ending? Like, has it already ended? And I guess a broader question than what's next for Afghanistan, which is an important question. What is next for Afghanistan? I think a broader question to be asked here is, do you end a war in the 21st century? Because, you know, we think about wars that we were taught in school and whatnot. And of course, they're always more complicated than what they teach you in school. But at some point, they ended, you know? The people met up, people stopped fighting at some point, even though, you know, because the way communications used to be, there would be people on the battlefield fighting for months, in some cases, even years after the wars technically ended. But, you know, when people got the message, the war's over, people go home, right? But is there going home in the kind of world order that exists you know the what the <laughs> united states calls the rules-based international order which i find very funny for lots of reasons we've talked about in previous episodes but it, it, is there a war that ends in the 21st century is a good question and my answer is no i don't think there's a war that ends in the 21st century it merely winds down and winds up being like leaving a gas burner on low. It's just there. It's still, it's still producing heat and it's still producing noxious gas in your kitchen, but it's, you're not thinking about it until it blows up. Yeah, I want to agree with Gideon. I, I don't think that the, I think the conflict is going to stay in its present state I don't really know how much longer, but it's going to stay. It just simply put, neither side is strong enough to fully defeat the other. And even if the Afghan government starts to decline, all of its neighbors would be harshly, except for Pakistan, would be harshly opposed to a Taliban takeover. Um, just considering that, so the Taliban are an Islamist fundamentalist organization and all of the states around it, barring um, barring Pakistan and Iran are sort of in that are, are secular dictatorships uh, or, or ranging from secular dictatorships to, to sec secular um, illiberal democracies. But in a sense, they're all, they've all had experiences with Islamist insurgencies and therefore really are opposed, would be opposed to a state um, that has, that is explicitly Islamist and then Iran itself would would not would not really at all be okay with um, with Afghanistan being run by the Taliban is because well the Taliban are Sunni and really the the Iranian Iran as a as a as a um, Shia theocracy would is not going to be okay with um, a Sunni theocracy right on their border as well. So really none of the states except for Pakistan are really going to be okay with the Taliban taking over. And so even, even when the Taliban had won, there was still, um, there had still, there were still 
Afghanistan has been in a constant state of conflict since 1979. There's not been a pause. They have been in a war or with another state or been admired in an insurgency since 1979. Because even when the Taliban had, had taken over almost complete control of the country, there was still the Northern Alliance. And so even if the Taliban takes over, there's still going to be a vast amount of different of different ethnic groups that are going to be opposed to the Taliban because they just simply put our primarily Pashtun group. And I don't, I'm going to like sort of wrap this up, but in a sense, even if, even with the U.S. troop presence leaving, and even if the Taliban win the war, they're not going to win because they're always going to, there's always going to be groups that are going to form sort of res, some sort of resistance. Um, and so I really think right now, the only solution stepping forward where we can, where there can actually be an end to the conflict is some kind of integration of the Taliban into the political system. Because otherwise, the, there's always going to be a, an insurgency ongoing in Afghanistan, and they're never going to have a moment of peace. Um, and with that, I'm going to hand it to Kirsten for her story. Thank you, Ethan. And thanks to both of you for like all three of you really, for always covering things that are so important and that we really should know about. Because I know I didn't really know about either of the things that we talked about so far on the show today. And I feel like I've learned a lot. Um, so I'm really glad for that. So another week with Kirsten, another true crime recommendation and another look at a case slash bigger topic. So this week, it's another docu-series. And again, this one takes a bit of a different approach than what we're used to seeing. We are taking a break from Netflix though, to talk about the upcoming Stars series, Confronting a Serial Killer. Over the, over the course of five episodes, this series is described by Suloni Gajur by writing for the AV Club as one that offers the stripped down gruesome details behind Samuel Little's killings of 93 women and possibly more, as well as the lapses in the criminal justice system that allowed him to remain free for over three decades before he was properly apprehended in 2012. And I say properly because he had an extensive rap sheet and multiple run-ins with the law before 2012 when he was eventually arrested for or apprehended for these murders. As Gajur describes it in the review, the series in part brings light to some of the victim's stories as well as the following the journey of Jillian Lauren, who's a journalist and author that reached out to Little in 2018 to interview him for a book. Confronting a killer is anchored by somewhat of Lauren's own experiences and how they led her to doing just that, confronting the man behind at least 93 women's deaths between 1970 and 2005 and listening as he recounts the stories behind many of them. One point of the case that I want to look at more than the details of how Little committed his crimes, which is something Gajur also mentions in their review of the series, how Little was able to kill so many women before being apprehended. Little targeted victims who he felt would not be looked for or missed. This meant that as Gajur mentions, he targeted many black women. And he also targeted many women who were low income, who were sex workers and who were transgender women taking advantage of their circumstances. 
More generally, Little took advantage of the fact that Honestly, these people were less likely to be looked for by the police, and the police were less likely to put as much effort into solving their deaths. According to the FBI website, he even believed that no one was accounting for his victims in general. And the FBI has been able to verify 50 of his confessions with more pending final confirmation according to them many of which were originally thought to be overdoses, accidents, or just due to undetermined causes. Honestly, it's really saddening to see this kind of thing happen in a lot of cases that we look at. Serial killers tend to go after people that they don't think will be missed or who law enforcement won't work as hard to get justice for when they go missing. It's just the reality of it. And sometimes it feels like case after case, we see the same kinds of people or very similar kinds of people being targeted. If you've read or watched or listened to anything about serial killers, you'll know that they tend to target sex workers a lot. Some examples of other serial killers who went after sex workers that you might have heard of include the Green River Killer, whose name is Gary Ridgway, or the Yorkshire Ripper, whose name is Peter Sutcliffe, or even the Jack the Ripper of the 19th century London. An article published by Sage Journals notes that police do not prioritize searches for missing sex workers. Their lives are not valued like the lives of missing middle-class white women. That same article quotes Ridgeway, the Green River Killer, as saying they were too easy to pick up without being noticed and that he thought he could kill as many of them as he wanted without getting caught. According to an article on the National Center for Biotechnology Information's website, international efforts to track the murder of transgender people suggest that a transgender person is murdered at least once every three days, but the lack of proper data collection in many places, including the United States, prevents us from having an actually good idea of what these numbers really look like. So we're operating mostly with one hand tied behind our back in terms of data there. Violence against trans women specifically is also nothing new, as tragic as that is. Also, according to data from the Anti-Violence Project, trans women were 1.8 times more likely to experience sexual violence. Circling back to the docuseries we're talking about, Confronting a Killer also features interviews with victims' family members, according to Gajur, who writes that they made concerted efforts to locate the victims, but didn't get much help from the police. All told, the series will premiere on April 18th. My question for the panel is, once again, twofold, as it always is. What are your thoughts on the way serial killers identify people they won't be missed? Why does it work? And then my mainstay question as always, will you be watching this? Um, I don't know, this topic is so like, so nuanced because unfortunately, like there is right now currently an epidemic in the United States of black trans women being murdered. And oftentimes police officers and police departments misgender them, they don't seek justice, local news outlets rarely ever cover them, they misgender them, no one actually actually cares. Um, and we definitely 
need to do a better job to protect trans women, especially black trans women, um, and improve their material living situations. Um, because many times it does, um, I mean, if you're all at all, if anyone, I mean, even if you're not involved in mutual aid work, but if you're involved, if you're aware of mutual aid, you'll know, you'll see many mutual aid projects um, serve um, trans women and black trans women. Um, they're, they're just, I mean, I, I can't speak to the serial killer stuff. Like I, I genuinely don't know why people, I mean, I mean, people are, I mean, there's some, it's kind of, some people do so many horrific things in this country specifically. I have no, no answer or solution for that it is truly sickening. Um, but there just needs to be such a much more stronger network of support um, for trans women and black trans women. And I'd highly recommend um, if um, you have the means, um, if you see a GoFundMe like that or a mutual aid, donate to it. Um, there are several um, organizations that are serving trans women and black trans women specifically, like Glitz in New York, um, For the Girls, um, the Okra Project. Um, so if you can support those um, financially, if you can not um, share, because so many times it is, it is about material living and um, material resources that just aren't there to protect these people from the worst, from from some of the worst people in this society, like murderers and others like that. Um, so there just needs to be a much stronger level of support. Um, and you know, people can't do it all because Black trans people are already organizing for themselves and for other marginalized groups. So at some point, I do hope that there is some type of legislation to help. Um, and this epidemic um, and in general just help support marginalized communities in general financially, uh, AKA reparations. Um, yeah, definitely. I mean, there's at this point, you know, in the US government, there's been so many committees to form a study on, should we do reparations or not? At this point, we don't, we've had like, okay, I don't know the specific number, but it feels like at this point, we've had like 10,000 committees in the US Senate for if we should do a study on if reparations are needed. Like we don't need any more studies. We know that we need reparations um, and specifically towards black communities. And um, yeah, there's just, um, yeah, I can't really speak to serial killers and stuff like that, but if you can just support community organizations and because um, at the end of the day, we really only can protect each other. And I'm hoping that as this, Obviously this pandemic is not going to hear anytime soon, but as people are getting vaccinated and we can gather, I'm hoping kind of the collective grief that a lot of us are feeling, not just right now, but a lot of the time can be easier to process as we're able to see each other in person because so many times we're only able to express it online right now because it's not super safe to totally gather at the moment. But, and so it can feel really, everything can really feel really fragmented because you're just seeing people's Twitter profiles and their words and their profile picture. And it's not really like, um, It's not consolidated. No, it's not consolidated in any way. Um, Which is tough, but the, I think there is a way to mobilize, especially using tools like social media. 
Um, one great example, if you don't have the financial means to support things like for the girls or supporting people individually with their GoFundMes and things like that, there is such a thing and we can do a whole, I feel like I say this every time, we can do a whole episode on and then I say something. And this time it's the gay or trans panic defense that we see crop up in a lot of cases of murder and violence against LGBT plus people, especially trans people. And essentially it's just that you can claim in court that, oh, I killed them because I found out they were trans and I was so shocked and upset that I flew into a fit of violent rage or whatever they wanna say and killed them. And people have quite literally gotten away with murder um, by using this defense. And as of right now, according to the Movement Advancement Project, there is no law in Arizona um, to ban the use of this kind of defense. So there's something, if you are someone who would like to get involved and kind of move, motivate change on this kind of thing, that's a great place to start. Call your representative. Yeah. Don't write them, call them. Yeah, calling them works. Uh, 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 yes, apparently they do very much uh, do listen to you. Even if they don't do what you ask them to, they will note that down. And uh, yeah, let's just say enough people do, if enough people do it in numbers, you might even change their mind. It has worked on some things apparently. Um, I do want to say, Kirsten, back to the main thing real quick is, yeah, I guess the only thing I have to say, like, you know, when you brought up the whole, the case you're talking about tonight, I did think, the first thing I did think of was the Green River Killer. I was like, this sounds exactly like the Green River Killer. Um, the reason that's so is my family, a lot of my family lives up in the Seattle area, so yeah, I happen to know about that particular case a little bit, but and anyways, yeah, and I think the thing is with a lot of crime, a lot of, if you look at who is, who are crimes being done to, it's always going to be disproportionately the people on the edges of society, the poorest in your society, the most outcast. So it's not surprising that a high number of Black women, sex workers, and other such get, get targeted because these are the people at the at the quote unquote edges of our society, um, and yeah, I, I think that's just an important thing to note. Like generally speaking, crimes are always going uh, the way crime works is they're all, almost always disproportionately targeted at the people at the edges of society, not those who are most well connected. Ethan, did you have anything to say? Um, it just went in a sense rather similar to what uh, Gideon had to say. I still find it absurd that in, I know maybe, well, maybe less and less, this is something people should say, but I, I guess I still find it shocking that somehow that defense still exists and can it all be ever usable in a court of law? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm scrolling down the, there's a list that you can find actually of, by the same people, the Movement Advancement Project of, they account for every state um, and also Guam, Puerto Rico, uh, just territories and things like that. 
um, whether or not they have laws banning this kind of defense. And it's so disheartening to see. And this is a really updated list. It was updated as of March uh, 31st of this year. So many of these just say no laws, no laws to stop any of this. Um, and I'll end this out by saying, even though these are people, or especially because these are people that are considered to be, as Gideon described, on the edges or on the fringes of society, whatever we want to consider that, it's still, it is especially our responsibility as fellow human beings to look out for them and to care when things happen to them, especially bad things. And if you can do something about it, it's my personal opinion that you absolutely should, because I'm of the belief that when you're not working to change something, when you're not at least talking about it, making people aware, you're choosing to uphold and maintain that. And that's where I'm going to end for tonight. Thank you all once again. I know this is kind of an emotionally difficult segment, but I feel like it's an important one. And so I'm going to hand it off to Alejandro and say goodnight. Thank you, Kirsten. Um, I appreciate your story. It's very needed. Um, hope you have a good weekend. Um, so I don't know. I think I've just over this year, I've become, I love music, but I'm just so, I've become much more interested um, in um, just um, kind of uh, just human interest stories in general. Um, because more and more, it just feels like that's, that's, that's the thing that feels like it, not we should talk about, but it just feels like the more pressing thing um, to talk about. So I kind of want to do a quick, a quick reflection on as the school year is ending, I kind of just want to get everyone's thoughts. Um, because this past year, I, I keep, the word fragment keeps coming to mind, like everything has felt so so, so, so fragmented um, and not out of place, but just like 10,000 things going on it at, like at once, but no way to kind of bring it all together or process it in like one singular way, which has kind of been frustrating. Um, and I really hope that um, as we like re-enter society that that feeling gets less and less and like even just even quite literally just walking on the sidewalk next to another human that you don't know can literally be like the best thing for like my mental health personally. I'm like, I love like, am not maybe ambient noise isn't the right word, but I love sounds of like people. Like I love sounds of like elevators, um, like people shutting on their laptops, typing, walking, talking on the phone, like that kind of, I don't know, I kind of feed off of that because it's just nice to know that people are like, I don't know, like alive and like, you know, living and doing whatever they're doing rather than um, not. So yeah, this year has been kind of, it's been like, I mean, it's been like super, super tough. I don't think anyone, I mean, literally including our government was not prepared for a global pandemic. And I know pandemic is global, but it just feels more grand to say global pandemic um, and I'm just 
kind of wondering on like how long is it gonna take for us to like all kind of process what this past year put us all through. Um, Cause certainly while we all want to get back to like normal life, like the trauma and like all the processing still needs to happen of like, you know, everyone staying inside for a year or limited contact. Um, so I just want to get everyone's takes on how they've been, how they've been dealing with this past year. Me personally, it's just been like super tough, but I've for a long time just to like be super real, like I kind of put like taking care of myself on like the back burner um, just because I'm like, I always like want to do the thing that everyone else wants to do or just like kind of like sacrifice my well-being just to like um, make everyone totally happier. But as the months go by and like as I get older, I realize like if I don't prioritize taking care of myself, like everything is literally just um, like it's not gonna be fun. Like life is not gonna be fun. Um, and just to like anyone listening who like deals with mental illness, like I do like my heart like super goes out to you. Um, I really wish we all grew up in a society that was like more affirming of these things being normal rather than just being like, oh, like Adam is sad and he's just really sad and there's really nothing more to it than that when it's like these things are so, these things have like, there's levels to this. Um, so I just want to get everyone's thoughts. Um, you can be as honest as you honest as you want, or revealing as you want. Um, so yeah. So, it, yeah, uh, it's been a year. Um, it's had its ups and downs. It feels like it's been decades. No, really, I really feel like this year has been like five years put into one. Just there were so many different phases of it. So many, so many, I mean, honestly, I feel like it, it's been another roller coaster for me. It's just been like the high moments the past year have been shockingly high. Like there's genuinely really good things that have happened in my life during the pandemic. Like I've made such deep friendships during this pandemic, which is so and I appreciate that so much. And it's almost weird to say like, yeah, something good happened in my life amidst all this horrible death and disaster. I mean, our nation losing more than 800,000 people dead to the pandemic. That is not even to say all the ones who have gotten it and have been left with all kinds of horrible side effects. So there have been, the highs have been high and the lows have been low. I've reached some lows this past year there are weeks i'm coming on even recording this show by the way which we do via zoom except for that one time we did a call-in episode about ah uh, yes the call-in episode um but anyway like even sometimes i come in recording the show and i'm like i'm just at it like i've had a week i've had a month and uh, everything is just beating me up and i'm like Yep, I guess we got to do this. Like, I love, by the way, I love doing this and I always look forward to it. But uh, there's weeks I'm coming in here with zero energy and you might not be able to tell, actually, because of how much energy this show gives me, like being here doing it. But I, yeah, it is, it's been a heck of a year to say the least, is a summary. 
I've got to make uh, my uh, thoughts um, short since um, I've got to, I've got to have another meeting out of this. But um, well, first I want to say uh, thank you to uh, Alejandra for the question. I think it's um, it's good to be introspective about the past year. Um, for me, um, I just wanted to say that. I really missed um, being at school. That that was the number one thing for me. I love, I, I know um, maybe it doesn't come across um, because many of our episodes don't always have the most positive spin on the, on the university, but I really do love ASU. I love the campus. I love the people. And um, it's a community I really enjoy being a part of. Um, and so, you know, I did feel really. I last this this last um, last week. I uh, visited uh, Gideon and his roommate um, at the downtown campus, and then visited some friends um, at the um, at the Tempe campus. And I'm grateful that with how quickly the vaccines came out, that I was able to do that, and we didn't have to wait longer. And just wanted to encourage people that once you feel safe, I really encourage. For those those of you or those of us who've spent a long and a lot of time um, at home in quarantine, to once you can go out, meet people that you haven't seen in a long time in person, you'll feel a lot better. Thank you, Ethan. Oh, um, I, I just want to say I, I I really echo what Ethan's saying there. Like, it, it one if you're vaccinated, and you know like. Don't don't be like a reckless. Uh, I'm not going to start cussing on air. Um, don't be reckless and start going. You know, start making international travel plans because that might be very that's extraordinarily problematic. And we're not getting into that right now. We don't have time. But um, despite the CDC guidelines on that, it is kind of problematic. However, I do recommend. Like, yeah, Ethan and I got to see each other last week, which was really cool. And I like. And I just finally got my second dose this week, which uh, really, I, I didn't say this uh, on, on the Twitter where I do to have a tendency to slightly overshare, but it did give, really knock me out a bit. But I'm glad I got it and I'm feeling so much better. It was one day of, I had to take a sick day, um, like an actual sick day, which I've not had to do in like two years. So, and yeah. Anyways, uh, yeah, and thank you, Alejandra, for asking that question. I do think it's important to take some time to kind of take stock of how of how far we've come and who, I mean, who knows what's next. There's no going back to normalcy. There's no going back. There's only moving forward. And how we move forward is, I guess, going to be the interesting question. Indeed. Thank you, Gideon and Ethan, for sharing. Thank you all for listening. Um, School year is almost over. Um, take care of yourself. Make sure you get all your stuff in. No late assignments. Oh, and one last thing. I think this is actually going to be the final time we are on Blaze. So thank you so much, everyone who's been listening to us on Blaze Radio and BlazeRadioOnline.com this year. We will be back on Blaze in September. Holy crap. Um. <laughs> yes. Um, you're def. Not that you're not a real one if you listen on the podcast, but. You're definitely a real one if you live on if you listen to blazeradioonline.com. 
just because we have no idea the listenership of the actual radio station itself. So we're just, it could be one person, it could be 300, we literally would never know. Um, so yeah, you can follow us on social media at review underscore squared. Thank you again for listening. This has been Review Squared. The song at the start of the episode is Dedicated to the Press by Betty Davis, and the music you hear is by Springtide.